One of my favorite things in my role as Plugged-In's director is doing question and answer segments with people who are familiar with the website. Usually it doesn't take very long before someone in a group I'm talking to about our ministry says, why on earth do you guys count swear words? That's so weird. (laughs) Well, it's a great question. And honestly, I can't wait to talk about it a little bit later on in our podcast. Hey everyone, Adam Holtz here, your host of The Plugged In Show. Focus on the family's weekly conversation about entertainment, pop culture, and technology. Thanks for joining us today. That question about profanity counts is one that pops up pretty regularly. And as you might have guessed it if you've been listening over the last few weeks, today we're going to finish our conversation about how we deal with different kinds of content in our movie reviews. We'll not only be talking about language concerns, but also about how we address drug and alcohol content, as well as negative stuff that doesn't fit neatly into our other categories. And in our second segment, I'm going to be talking with Jonathan McKee about how building a strong relational connection with our kids can help us navigate lots of the tech concerns we face in our families today. And be sure to stick around to the end of the show because you're not going to want to miss another installment of Pop Culture Connection. Well, before we dive in, I'd also encourage you to follow The Plugged In Show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment, leave a review, leave a like. We would love to hear what you are thinking about our conversations on The Plugged In Team. Well, joining me today for this conversation are Emily Clark, Kennedy Unthank, and Paul Acey. Hey, everyone. How are we doing today? Really great. Hey, Adam. You know, over the last few weeks, we have tried to give a proverbial Wizard of Oz peek behind the curtain at how and why we review movies the way we do. And I hope if you've ever been curious about that, that maybe we've answered some of your questions and given you some new insight into the process that we use here at Plugged In to bring movie reviews to you. Well, one of the things we know from our reader feedback is that other than sexual content, the crude and profane language section of our movie reviews is the second most viewed part of our movie reviews. So we're going to start there today before we also discuss drug and alcohol content and other negative elements. So let's dive in with this question, the one we often get from our readers and the one that I asked in the intro. Why do we bother to count profanities in movies. How would you guys respond to that? I think immediately that there's a biblical principle that our Christian readers uh, may immediately turn to. And so I think of immediately of uh, Colossians chapter 3 verses 5 through 10, where it says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now it continues and it says, And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and specifically obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I feel like none of us can say anything because he just like dropped the Bible on us and, (laughs) you know, like drop mic right there, drop Bible right there, you know. Uh, Now, I think that when it comes to like counting the profanities, though, it's like specifically like if you hear one F word or maybe even two, that will still qualify for a PG-13 rating, you know, versus 
Wolf of Wall Street, which has, I think, over... 525. Yeah, exactly. You know, like that one is going to be a lot more profane than one that maybe slips out one choice F word. Um, And it's it affects you differently when you're sitting there because in your head, you're like, okay, I can bleep out one. I can bleep out two F words. But can you bleep out 500 F words without it, like, not making sense anymore? So it, it kind of changes the tone of the film and the language of the film. And I mean that in terms of the English language of the film. It's like, how intelligent are these people if every other word that they say is a profanity? You know, you need a dictionary or a thesaurus or something because your choice of words is not very wide. You know, I also think that because of who we write for, it's important to sort of, you know, tabulating the profanities seems extreme in a lot of ways, right? But every family sort of draws a line a little bit differently. You know, what is navigable? What is not navigable? What is off limits completely? And we know that people have different sensitivities to different words. It's all about our mission to give parents and other viewers what they need to make a really qualified decision about the movies that they see. Um, And I think that that's really important. We give you the information so you can decide for yourself. One of the things that that I think about when it comes to this conversation, and and you've all touched on it, is that language matters. We're all word people, right? The words that we use are so important. Mm -hmm. They're so critical. And I think that when it comes to language in movies, um, it is actually one of the things that slips by our radar most easily if we're not paying attention. I I don't know about you guys, but when I was watching movies before I became a member of Plugged In, the swear words really sort of slid right by my radar. Like, I I never remembered if a movie was particularly profane, unless it was really, really profane. Right. Um, But you don't necessarily notice it because it's so part of our culture, right? I think that one of the things that counting the profanities reminds us how important this language is and how important it is to, Mm -hmm. as you said, Kennedy, to really guard what we say. I agree completely. I think that, you know, when I was in college and I was going to film school and doing all of that, I think that I was able to justify how many swear words that a script had because in my head it wasn't affecting me. But the truth is, I don't think it was really until I started working for Focus on the Family that I realized how bad my language had gotten because I was letting it slide (laughs) and I wasn't thinking about it. And especially after working at Plugged In, I, you know, as you said, counting the swear words, you really start to realize, wow, this movie just went above and beyond to get as many swear words in there as they could, it feels like. It feels like they're doing it because they can. And I think that that changes how you view the movie because you're like, was this actually good or was it just, you know, kind of meh because of all the swearing? Yeah. And I mean, I have personal experiences with this myself. Um, I remember my parents and I, we watched uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. (laughs) And there's a scene in there where uh, if you've seen the movie... They try and storm a castle, and they throw various animals over the side of the castle in order to stop them. And King Arthur yells out a uh, an inappropriate use of Jesus' name. Uh, a couple weeks later, my dad and I are playing a game of chess, and I remember that humorous scene, and I yell out, 
that inappropriate use of Jesus's <laughs> name, thinking, oh, this will make my dad laugh. Well, it nope. was a really good learning experience for me after that, as my dad told me, hey, you don't say that. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's right. As kids, kids can often imitate things without really fully understanding absolutely the context or the importance of the weightiness of what they are imitating. And I know for mm-hmm. me, raising my kids, I was actually more sensitive to profanity in movies, maybe more so than some other issues, because I didn't want my kids imitating it. I remember when the remake of Annie came out. I was really frustrated with it because it had a couple uses of the H word and the D word. And on one level, you could say, well, that's not that big a deal. It's got maybe four or five bad words in it. But on another hand, I'm like, in a movie for kids, why why are there Mm -hmm. any? And so for a long time, I didn't actually let my kids watch that movie, even though they were interested in it, because of that particular issue. And and as parents, as we, you know, circling back to where we started, we all have different thresholds of what we want our kids to hear and what we're comfortable helping them to navigate. And as they get older, that probably changes. You know, we, we think a lot about the context of movies and what is necessary to tell a story, right? Yes. And we've talked in the violence section how sometimes violence may be necessary to tell, to convey a certain point. I have never, ever gone to a movie and said to myself, you know what would have improved this movie? More swearing. <laughs> More swearing. It just, it just doesn't happen. It's, in terms of all the content that we tabulate, to me, it always seems like the least necessary. Well, I want to shift gears a bit. You know, as a parent, it's easy for me to see how profanity in a movie might influence my kids to imitate that behavior. I'm not sure I have the same immediate sort of wincing response when there is drug or alcohol content. Now, of course, it depends on what kind we're talking about and the degree and the how graphic it is. Yeah, so, are we talking about uh, euphoria or right, are we talking about, exactly. you know, a glass of wine at dinner? But why do you think it's important that we record content in this area? And Emily, I want to pick on you because you just yeah. brought up a very current and relevant example. It's not a movie. It's a TV show. But I think we're still in the, the same territory here. Yeah, no, I think that it really is important to, you know, mention everything. Um, and, you know, kind of going back to the language issue where there are different sensitivities. Some families are there's no alcohol in the home. Period. We right. don't drink. We don't go there. And, you know, I, it also becomes an issue if you have a history of drug or alcohol abuse in your family, because if to see it depicted on screen so casually, that can be very hurtful. It can be very triggering for certain emotions. It can be like it, it, you may find yourself watching a really good film and then be thrown off by that because it was just thrown in so casually. But with you specifically with Euphoria. So that is a show that technically if you really want to get technical they don't make it for teens it's rated tvma but it's about teens it depicts teens and let's be honest the only people really want to watch are teens you know teenagers are the only ones who really care about that show and you know the main character is a drug addict and half of the show is just watching her go through this struggle and you know um zendaya who plays her has you know 
she's done interviews where she talks about how, you know, she wants people to relate to Rue and to sympathize with this girl and what her family is going through with all these struggles. She doesn't want you to to celebrate the drug use. She wants you to celebrate the person. And it's so hard, though. It's like, but how do teenagers who maybe they've had exposure to real life drug use, maybe they haven't, but how is a teenager expected to draw the line between what's appropriate and what's not appropriate in terms of drug and alcohol abuse? One of the things that strikes me about this particular section is how imitative you know, kids and teens can be when it comes to this. I watched a lot of old movies growing up, and you had people, you know, drinking their brandy and smoking their cigars. I remember— So did you do that as a child? <laughs> well, here's a story. So so when I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have that scene in, you know, Tibet or whatever, yeah. where, where you have the this scene. woman yeah, drinking these shots, having this drinking contest with this huge guy— when we got home after watching that, my parents, for some reason, had a bunch of plastic communion glasses. <laughs> we filled those I'm not shot sure glasses. sure we should be laughing those, at where this story is going. Those communion glasses were about the right size for a shot glass, or at least in my mind. And so mm. we filled them full <laughs> of milk, and we did a drinking game, my sister and I. <laughs> so milk. this this is... This is because of the way sometimes it looks in these movies, it can look incredibly cool and suave. And sometimes you do have movies where it takes a darker turn, but oftentimes it just looks fun. Well, think about, I mean, Paul and Adam, you'll probably relate to this a little more, but there was a time where you couldn't watch... Because we're the big drinkers and drug users, <laughs> no, right? No, because you're... Just listen. Just listen, okay. Adam. All right, all right. <laughs> there was a time where every movie had people smoking. Right. Mm -hmm. Every single movie. And that was the cool thing to do. And this is, of course, before they realized, oh, that causes cancer. So everybody imitated it. And you might have like a show or two where they bring it up where they're like, oh, yeah, we used to do this all the time and we stopped, you know. But it's like that used to be such a common thing that you would see in TV shows and movies. And then finally, they kind of got a clue and they were like, oh, by the way, this is really bad for your health. Maybe don't do that. And you stop seeing it. And now it's actually part of the thing that goes into MPAA ratings is whether or not smoking is depicted because they don't want to encourage that to kids. But like, it's crazy because that used to be so normal and imitative, as you said, Paul. Well, and two things on that. There was a 2001 Dartmouth study that indicated that up to 50% of teen initiation of smoking could be directly traced to movies. Oh, yeah. 50%. Totally. Look at which is Which is kind of mind-blowing to me. Um, but that's a great example of, of influence and how that particular element has changed in terms of cultural acceptance and understanding over the last 20 years or so. Yeah, and I, I think as well, Paul and Emily, you... Uh, when you mentioned euphoria, Emily, you brought up a really good point. I think in general, a lot of stuff related to drugs or alcohol, it's either depicted as really bad in the movie or it's depicted as there's no consequences a whatsoever. Joke. Yeah, totally. And so, like, for instance, in some movies, you have the drunk abusive father. You know, that's kind of a Hollywood yep. trope at this point um, where... The entire one of the main reasons why the protagonist is on the way they are is because of the way their father treated them. And that's a direct result of their father's alcoholism. And then in other movies, you have people who go out and get utterly 
destroyed Ooh, with right. alcohol. And then they just come to work the next day. They laugh it off. There's no consequences. There's no ill yeah. effects on their bodies. And that's just not realistic. Well, and that's, I mean, we could talk about the hangover, which is obviously a reference to yeah. drinking too much. What? And there are, right? <laughs> um, spoiler warning. Um <laughs> And I think that one of the things that happens with comedy is we tend to not take content seriously when we're laughing at it. And especially yeah. that idea of consequences. Sometimes we get really gritty, realistic depictions and we have one set of questions to talk about there. But with with comedy, I think a question that we can ask our kids, not only with this content, but with almost anything is what are the consequences of this choice? Do we see any consequences depicted? Um, and even when we get a realistic depiction of drug and alcohol use, I think we have to ask the question, and we've you know, hinted at this with euphoria, is this a cautionary tale? Or are we perhaps still seeing a glorification and a normalization of this kind of behavior? I think with we, euphoria, it's both. Yeah, and I think sometimes mm -hmm. it is both. And that's why one of the things that we want to give you with this section is the ability to know ahead of time what's coming, but also the ability to talk through this with your kids. Because decisions related to drug and alcohol use, most kids are going to get presented with those at some point. And sometimes parents might even be surprised that those things are happening younger than they would have anticipated. So this is an important segment. Uh, I think that we could say more about it, but I also want to touch on our last category of content that we deal with in our reviews. And that's what we call other negative elements. And it's a little bit of a <laughs> umbrella catch-all. Tell our listeners about this category and the kind of things that show up there. I feel like it's like you said, it's a catch-all category. So it's everything that wasn't didn't specifically fall into the rest of it. So it's toilet humor. It's, you know, when a kid is really rude to their parents and that child is then not disciplined for being rude to their parents. It's um, maybe emotional or mental abuse, not necessarily physical. It's... Um, Everything that doesn't fit somewhere. Yeah. Right, right. We talk about stealing there. We sometimes talk about world issues there. Yes. We, it, something that we feel parents should be aware of that we haven't gotten to before, <laughs> that's where we put it in. And sometimes those issues can be pretty big. Yeah. Right? You know, I think that a lot of parents are very uneasy about a lot of toilet humor. They can be very wary of some worldview issues that they might yeah. find. Yeah, I think the worldview issues are, are one of the big ones here. Uh, that we try to deal with. I remember early on in my plugged in tenure, I went to see a movie aimed at tween and teen girls called Aquamarine. And I remember that I one. was still under the tutelage of our former editor, Bob Smithhauser at that point. And I remember walking out and thinking, man, that didn't have very much content at all. And Bob schooled me. <laughs> he said, here's, here's what you missed. Yeah. He said, what you missed is the attitudes of these girls toward their parents is atrocious. And uh, it was a teachable moment for me just in learning to see that we not only deal with content, but we deal with people's behaviors. We deal with attitudes and relationships and what is being reflected in terms of normal behavior. And that one basically said, it's totally normal for teens to completely diss their parents and treat them with a lack of respect. And I was still getting up to speed on what it meant to be a, a plugged in Ian at that point. Uh, so it was a good teachable moment. Yeah, and I uh, I actually did that with Moonfall as well. When Adam, you and I went to go see that. So spoiler warnings for that movie. But uh, one of the worldviews that they talk about is this 
really strange evolutionary over the course of a millennia uh, kind of thing that they just throw in a movie that I just thought was going to be about the moon falling into the earth. Um, <laughs> Which well, it that was. doesn't. It, it was, but but you know that doesn't fall under violent. Certainly, it doesn't fall under sexual. It doesn't fall under uh, crude language. But then also, there's another section of that where a lot of times I'll put a, things in that I might not find particularly offensive, but it seems a little off, and so I want to include it. You know, for instance. In my Marry Me review, Jimmy Fallon is on the screen and he's talking about how he's making jokes about the expense of the main protagonist. And those aren't necessarily crude language things, but there are things that uh, I believe that parents might want to be aware of that they might want to uh, be able to catch in that movie review. Yeah, I think those are great examples, Kennedy. And I think that what we're really wanting to do with this is just sort of, you know, Nail anything else that as you watch this movie as a parent, if you're going to have concerns about it, that you'll know that we have dealt with it and they don't necessarily fit precisely into these other categories. But sometimes the other negative element segment actually is one of the most important in the entire review. Mm -hmm. So I hope as we have talked about how we go about categorically dissecting a movie uh, <laughs> with all of these different content concerns over the last few weeks that it's given you some insight and some understanding about why we do what we do and why it's important for you to check out what we have to say. Uh, because there may be something in any of these categories that really is a pain point for you and your family that you're going to want to be aware of ahead of time. So thanks for going on this journey with us over the last few weeks. We hope it has been an insightful one for you. Well, in our second segment today, I've got Jonathan McKee here with me. Jonathan, thanks for joining me today. Oh, always a pleasure. You know, Jonathan, we spend a lot of time on the Plugged In Show talking about screens. We talk about screens. Yeah. We talk about smartphones. We talk about screen time. We talk about filters. We talk about social media and its influence and setting boundaries. And um, sometimes I think we get really focused on the mechanics. But as we've talked about these things over the last couple of years on the show, I've often heard you pull out some bigger principles that I think are really terrific because they're short, they're sweet, they're concrete. But they're also pretty profound in the way that I think that we could use them in our families as we deal with this issue of screens and entertainment and technology. So today I just want to give you a chance to talk about a couple of those and um, let's go ahead and just dive right in. Yeah, sure. I'm excited uh, to dialogue about it. Well, the first one I want to focus on is one that you called turning overreaction into interaction. Tell us more about what that means and specifically you know, what it looks like in action. Maybe give us an example or two from your family. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that comes from a place deep within me because <laughs> whenever I just confession, when I give a parent workshop, it's not me standing up there as this parenting expert who, you know, did it all right. It's actually kind of quite the opposite. It's actually more me looking back and saying, I wish I would have done this better. Hmm. And I think there was, as with all the good times I had with my kids and all the fun adventures we did and the things I did right, I think there was a dark cloud of when my kids messed up, dad overreacted. Huh. And I think it affected the family in such a negative way that for me, um, I honestly, when I'm sharing with friends and sharing with others about parenting tips and if I had a parenting do-over, 
the conversation very often goes to talking about how I wish that I would have learned how to turn my overreaction into interaction. And that's a principle I've kind of talked and written a lot about um, because I think it could have really changed some things. And, yeah. and I think it's important. Uh, the other thing is I, I've talked with a lot, the more I dialogue with um, especially dads, one-on-one time where I get with dads, I can't believe how many, um, I'd say how many parents today really struggle with feeling like they freaked out, mm. they lost it. Um, when I do school assemblies, talking to young kids about screens in particular, um, very often I'll share, well, hey, hey, have you talked to your parents about that? And kids will literally laugh and be like, there's no way I'd tell my parents about this because, and they always say the same words, they'd freak out. Mm. So I think for us, it's not because I think that parents should become these soft, let your kids do whatever they want, no rules parents. Not not that at all. But it's just that we want to be able to be a safe person for our kids to go to where they can come and they can dialogue with us and they can ask us questions. And if we're overreacting, that's going to hinder that every time. And so we need to learn how to, when our kids come to us, be able to create an opportunity to dialogue with our kids so they feel open and safe to ask us a question, talk with us, um, interact with us, because the more we overreact, the less we're going to get those opportunities. So how do we curb that knee-jerk reaction to overreact? Because I certainly have done that, and I think probably most parents have it. And it and it's when your kid does something either so disappointing or so clearly out of bounds that you think, come on, guys, uh, what are we doing here? Surely you're smarter than that. And we go off. But what does it look like to move into that interaction instead? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to share two things there. And the first is kind of a very practical, you know, here's a cool trick. Here's something you can try. <laughs> um, but the first one is simply that. Uh, do whatever you can to buy yourself some time. Mm. And for me, when I, I'd say probably kid number three, when I finally started to uh, be able to maybe do to this a little it bit, out. <laughs> I, I realized that I wasn't good in the moment. And mm. to be honest, that I didn't deserve the opportunity to talk in the moment because I just constantly failed. And whenever I would say that I got this, um, I didn't have it. And I blew it every time. So I, the advice I give parents today is to have a rehearsed speech that when that moment comes, that they would literally have a way of pressing that pause button that might be something like this. And if their son, you know, I mean, picture this, their son breaks a rule, their, their daughter downloads something they weren't supposed to download. Uh, they grabbed that app they weren't supposed to. They snuck and looked at a screen when they, whatever it is. And we, we've all experienced these moments where our kids did something like this. And we want to just be like, what? What are you doing? I didn't raise you like that. You know, and we want to go <laughs> so that into would be our an speech. an example of we, overreaction. Yeah, exactly. You know, we've done to instead hit that pause button and just look at her kid and, and Taylor, I love you so much. And um, I know I'm just going to blow up and say something stupid, but I love you so much. I just want you to know there is nothing you can do that would possibly get in the way of how much I love you. And I just, I just need some time. So I want to pray. And I'm wondering if you could just respect me and, and, why don't you leave your phone there on the table? Why don't you go upstairs and do your homework or do something else? And I just need some time to think because I love you so much. I know I'll probably say something stupid and um, I really want to be able to listen to you and hear you out. And I don't think I should do that at this moment. Mm. And I think that a lot of us, 
would be a lot better. I know I was a lot better two hours later, the next morning, whatever, because I, I had, I had thought about it. I prayed about it. I, I had the Holy Spirit, you know, helping me, you know, do that. And not that he can't off the cuff, he can, but I was able to really take that time I needed. So that's the first thing I'm going to share is, is that's a kind of a practical tip or tool, but, <laughs> but kind of like know, giving yourself a time out almost. Yeah. But I'll tell you something. I used to preach that tip and I don't think I'd quite got it hmm. without the second thing. And the second thing I didn't really realize until our family was in crisis and we had a moment where basically we as a family had to hit the reset button and we ended up going to counseling and we ended up going through all kinds of stuff. And it was through that moment of being humbled that I literally fell on my face before God and said, God, I don't got this. I need you. Hmm. And I just started spending a lot more time in scriptures and in the Psalms. And my wife and I completely changed our relationship by laying a foundation of studying God's word and surrendering to him and saying, God, we don't got this parenting thing. We don't got this marriage thing. We don't got this life thing. I need you to take over every aspect of this. And we literally now pray together every morning. We read our Bible every night before we go to bed. And it's not because it's some cliche. I got to do it. Let me check this box. It's because we've been hurt and we know what it's like to try to do it on our own. And we're so grateful for God's strength. And I just can't emphasize more how much we really need to surrender and give this to God because it's only through that that I'm able to now do that with my kids. And guess what? My grandkid. Hmm. Thank you, Jonathan. I mean, I think that that sort of personal transparency, it's important because our goal is not perfection. Our goal is to be engaged in a way that points our kids toward God. And, and I think that you've really modeled that in what you just said. And I think it leads into the next thing that I have heard you say, and that's the idea of connection before correction. And in some ways, this is kind of parallel to uh, the first point you've talked about, but tell us why it's important to get the relationship piece right before we try to discipline our kids' behavior. Oh, no, thank you. Good question. Uh, it was actually after the humbling experience of me, you know, realizing I don't got this, that I actually pinned a chapter in my book, Parenting Generation Screen, that is, and I titled it Connection Before Correction, because I realized so many of us, we enter into this correction, you know, because our kids need correction. And very often we walk in a room and our immediate, you know, hey, how much time are you spending on your device? You know, it's just immediately, it's always this, you know, it, it's like the drill sergeant kind of thing. And, and uh, for me, I just realized, you know, that in my house didn't work. And I found that if I walking in the room, instead of, you know, saying, Hey, how much time do you have left on YouTube? You know, instead plopping on the ground and being like, Hey, you know, what you looking at at YouTube? Cool. I've never seen that before. Show me, you know, Hey, how'd your day go? Hey, what was the best part of your day? What was the worst part of your day? And just literally just being there for them and hmm. connecting with them. That then started to apply. And what I wrote in that chapter basically was how when our kids, when we start engaging our kids in dialogue about, is my phone allowed in the bedroom? What age do I get a device? Can I have social media? Can I download this app? All these questions that we're encountering every day instead of just, nope, or let's see what plugged in says, or let's Google the, you know, instead of that, what if we actually created a dialogue about them where we asked them to tell me more about why you want this app? Oh, that's cool. Let's research this. Oh, what's it say? Do you think this app is good? And then listening, actually 
get this parents listening to what they say and i go as far as to say become their defense attorney in your mind and literally start to think start to empathize step in their shoes and think of of what they're trying to communicate and why this is to when you take the time to connect and listen and ask them what they think and you find out that your daughter is literally the only one of her friends who doesn't have instagram mm. and she's made fun of for it and to realize what that's like, not so that we can go, sure, here you go, have Instagram, but so we can empathize with her. Mm. And so we can know where she's coming from and make that connection before correction. Man, I love that, Jonathan. And I think so often as parents, we see a behavior that we want to fix and we can miss the relationship that needs to be nourished. And you know, our kids are going to be kids. There's correction. There are adjustments that need to be made. There are boundaries that need to be set and discipline that needs to happen. But when that happens outside the context of a loving relationship, I think it can create hard hearts, which is kind of what you have been talking about. And I think the other thing that I think it connects with is just the idea that Jesus came in grace and truth, right? And, and sometimes as parents, I think there's a temptation to hammer our kids with the truth Uh, And the grace piece can get lost. And so I think what you have illustrated for us today are a couple of ways that we can see grace in action, in taking time to connect, in taking time to not let our overreactions shoot down the mountain like a runaway train. Well, and and I love that you said, you know, Jesus came in grace and truth. And and that kind of goes back to that thing I was alluding to earlier about spending time in scripture, because the more I spend time reading about Jesus and seeing mm. the way he interacted with people, when he encountered, you know, a woman caught in sin, he encountered a guy named Zach who, you know, happened to be in a tree who ripped off literally <laughs> probably everybody out there in that crowd. Good old you Zach. Know, so often our response wants to be, man, you ripped off everybody in this crowd and anger and whatever. And he he would respond with, let's go to dinner, you know, and, and that's amazing how he kind of started with that connection part. Um, he started with that grace. He started with that. Let me heal you. Let me feed you. And the more we soak in the way he is and the more we soak in his love, maybe it'll spill over to our kids a little bit. Mm, I love that, Jonathan. Well, thanks so much for everything you've had to say today. And I hope as you've listened today, maybe it's given you some some new anchor points to think about how you're relating to your kids and, and maybe some adjustments you can make in your parenting as it relates to entertainment and technology. Well, now it's time for a part of our show we call the Pop Culture Connection. You know how it works. I've got about, oh, a dozen-ish pop culture-related questions, and Our producer, Ashley, is going to pull one, and uh, you will also wield the dreaded timer, which is going to grant each of you graciously 30 seconds to answer one of these questions. And the questions are sort of like, well, who was better, Sean Connery or Daniel Craig in the role of James Bond? And however many answers you can give in 30 seconds will determine your score, also judged by Ashley. And at the end, we will have... A winner. So uh, everybody got it? You all ready? 
ready as I'll ever Ashley, be. Ashley, are you yeah. ready to? Uh, I am ready. Are you ready to drop the hammer? Kennedy, this Absolutely. is going to be great. Let's do it. Who's your James first victim? <laughs> My first victim is going to be again Paul. Oh, oh I love goodness. it when you pick on Paul first. Yes, it's my favorite. Oh, I love it so much. All okay, right, Paul, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, your question is James Bond. No, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> what family-oriented TV show, and it can be comedy or drama, gives us the most positive lessons about family and why? The Waltons, The Wonder Years, Full House, The Middle, or fill in the blank with a show of your own choice. The Waltons, because they all live in this huge house, right? There's like about 17 million of them, and they have to all get along. And I could name all 17 million of them, which seems like they should all be answers for you, Ashley. But essentially, they have to figure out mealtimes. They have to say goodnight to each other. They have to get along with multi-generations, which I think is a very, very big issue that we could learn from today. Wow, you're done early. I did. That's it. <laughs> Nice. You get 17 million points. Thank you. Million. Paul's our winner today. They're so just handing them out. Those are going to deflate. I, I'm not okay with this. All right. Who's your next victim? Next victim. Let's go with Kennedy. Oh, Kennedy, you're up next. All right, Kennedy. Captain America's shield, Spidey's web shooters, Batman's utility belt, Wonder Woman's lasso, Wolverine's claws. If you were going to be a superhero, which of these heroic accessories would you want to have oh, and why? Oh, I question. It's not your question. Bob. Instantly, uh, Spider-Man, uh, mainly by process of elimination. First off, you get this uh, really easy to create, apparently, um, <laughs> web slinging stuff. You get to go. You essentially get the power of flight without uh, the government wanting to probe you for it. Um, Batman, I've never understood as a hero. I don't really think he's all that great oh. personally. That's that's controversial. Um, and yeah, I just think it's there's a lot of utility you can do with it, and I'm not good with the frisbee, so I can't pick the shield. <laughs> All right, I love that, right. especially so, the frisbee part. That's I cannot my believe one. what you said about Batman. You know, Paul you wrote a book about Batman. It's because, so Look, I, I don't think that even vigilante no, justice. No, here's the thing. <laughs> Yes, your parents were murdered. I don't think that that's a big enough influence to make you turn into a bat and right, go on a right. crime oh, fight. Right, right. Right. I love this conversation. Can I, can but I just say that I somebody made my else's own turn. utility belt as a kid? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kenny, I gave you six points for that answer. Oh. Nice. It's a little bit less than nice. 17 million, A little Kennedy. bit less. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's my first time. All righty. So then next is going to be Adam. All right. Are you ready, Adam? I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready. You can choose one arcade game console to put in your basement. What do you pick and why? Asteroids. <laughs> and why? I'm That's smiling. It. Don't stop the moment. <laughs> so if I had an Asteroids in my basement, all would be well with the world because it was the first video game that I remember playing. Yeah, Space Invaders was already out. And I just wanted to keep blowing up rocks. It's just sort of this primal thing. You just, you have this little delta shaped thing that shoots dots and it blows up rots, rocks. And then stupid UFO comes. Anyway, you know about asteroids, but I think having one in my basement would take me back to my childhood. So that you're sort of living out that fantasy now as an editor where you blow up copy. <laughs> yeah, I've experienced you that. You know, it just doesn't feel like as much fun though. And now it's Emily's turn. <laughs> All right. I think we're going to get a whole podcast out of this one. Oh, boy. Emily, your question is, <sighs> Okay. Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, which franchise is better and why? And feel free to include the books in this discussion if you like. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, my. Timer's I going. I have to choose. 
I, I oh don't take thirty seconds. Okay, I not have to choosing. remember. Okay, I'm going to choose Lord of the Rings Correct. one because I chose Lord of the Rings in this exact same question. 10 years ago when I was in high school and like, and uh, I defended it really well back then. Now I don't remember what I said. Um, it's better Gandalf. because it's been around longer. Gandalf, <laughs> hobbits, because I want to be a hobbit. I would be a hobbit if I could, or a dwarf, the dwarves. Uh, You're right. I could have done a so whole podcast. Cool. I could I have know. gone for, for That's, ages. Maybe eons. we'll do a bonus podcast someday. <laughs> That's like the perfect question for Emily. All oh. right. So I, I know I've got six points for you. So, Paul, you're clearly the winner this Thank week. You. Uh, Thank you. 17 I million points. points. I have. We could have recount. I counted three for you. You know, I could have had more if I hadn't been so conflicted about which one to choose. Oh, man. See, I, I could have had 17 million. I was and just one, uh, one film. I was to just sort of. Relaxing into the euphoria of the idea of having asteroids in my basement. Because, <laughs> I mean, it just would be a dream. Yeah, you wasted a good amount of time just sitting there going. I know, <sighs> I know, I know. It was, a, it was a good moment for me. Well, thanks again for spending some time with us at the Plugged In Show this week. What did you think about our conversation about the last several sections of our content in our movie reviews? You can let us know on Facebook or Instagram or Shoot us an email at team at thepluggedinshow.com, and we would love to hear from you. We'd also like to say thank you to you for being a part of The Plugged In Show as a loyal listener. So today, for a gift of any amount, we'll send you a copy of Focus on the Family Vice President of Parenting, Dr. Danny Huerta's book, Seven Traits of Effective Parenting. And you'll find a link to order that book in the episode notes for today's show, as well as in the Plugged In blog entry for our conversation this week, or just give us a call at 800-A-FAMILY. Well, as always, thanks so much for taking some of your time to join us today. We hope that you have enjoyed our conversation and that it's also encouraged and equipped you as well. And we look forward to joining you again next week on another episode of The Plugged In Show. Plugged In.